The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze with Grace Goller. Dealing with cancer is by no means easy to handle, but our program aims to make it easier through knowledge. Whether you've been recently diagnosed, are going through treatment right now, or are a survivor, our program will have points that you should hear. And by sharing our stories together, we'll make it truly a life-changing experience that you don't have to go through alone. Now, here is your host, Grace Goller. Welcome to another week of Navigating the Cancer Maze. If you're a regular listener to the show, you'll know that the cancer education and awareness of this program is a continuing theme. So my background as a naturopath has been a great teacher and I'm fortunate to have had many wise elders as teachers during my 38-year career. They've taught me what to treat and what not to treat, who to treat and who not to treat with natural medicines. As my chosen field of work was supporting cancer patients, I learned that the most effective way I could truly assist cancer patients was by counselling, psycho-oncology and directing patients into the best of conventional care. And that brings me to introduce today's guest, highly skilled and experienced gynaecological oncological surgeon, Professor Alex Crandon. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, before we discuss the different types of gynaecological cancers and advances in the field, could you just tell our listeners a little of your background and why this specialised field of medicine became your field of expertise? Well, I um, graduated from the University of Sydney um, 40 years ago this month and after a couple of years in Sydney went over to England where I did my training as a gynaecological cancer surgeon. Um, particularly training um, in oncology surgery and um, came back to Australia in 1980 and worked for 13 years in Sydney before coming to uh, Brisbane to take up the uh, inaugural chair of gynaecological cancer at the University of Queensland which I held then for just over 10 years. Mm. So, a broad, broad field of experience. So, I'd like to begin our discussion now on the gynaecological aspect um, of your work. And if we could discuss cancer of the cervix. So, uh, what are the signs and symptoms that someone listening to the show today, maybe they're not a cancer patient, uh, that women need to look for and what can they do if they suspect a problem? We would hope that most women who develop cancer of the cervix have it picked up before they're symptomatic. Uh, that means we would hope they get it picked up with a pap smear. Unfortunately, about 40% uh, about of the female population do not have adequate screening and that 40% accounts for about 90% of our cases of cervical cancer. Wow. 
when they present, they usually present with vaginal bleeding between their periods, particularly after intercourse. They're the things that would worry us. Mm -hmm. So uh, because it grows slowly and um, the precancerous phase can last for a long time before cancer develops, can you explain the difference between the traditional pap smear and the updated liquid-based cytology? Is that latter one the one that women are offered um, now when they go to a doctor? That depends very much on where it's uh, being undertaken. Um, there are Department of Health guidelines and uh, for example here in, uh, in Australia the guidelines are still to use a traditional uh, pap smear and revert to uh, liquid-based cytology when there are problems with uh, inflammation making the smear difficult to interpret. The difference between them is that the smear is taken the same way with a traditional smear the uh, specimen is um, put onto a glass slide and then sprayed with a fixative. Uh, with liquid-based cytology, uh, the uh, specimen is put directly into the fluid. The difference is that the liquid-based cytology tends to get rid of a lot of background rubbish, mucus, inflammatory cells, etc. It makes it in many ways easier to pick up malignancies or pre-malignant changes, but it often means that uh, the cytologist won't pick up uh, inflammatory changes um, that while not specifically being related to, their, to a cancer or pre-cancer may be a problem for the patient. Mm. Uh, is it a good idea then if uh, someone requested both or, or is one sort of better than the other based on that answer? Um, I believe that liquid-based cytology is, uh, is the preferred way to take the sample and in fact in my own practice I haven't done a traditional pap smear for some years. Um, I'm doing just entirely liquid-based cytology. Uh, a few years ago in the United Kingdom they moved from traditional pap smears to taking liquid-based uh, cytology as the preferred means of doing a pap smear. Uh, I think it's very much on how government departments decide to interpret the literature and how much money they want to spend on their screenings. Mm, and that's often the case. Uh, sometimes if people know that they have a choice they might be able to request that choice, um, which could be a real plus. They could certainly request it, but uh, if there is uh, government guidelines recommending a traditional pap smear, then they would probably have to pay an extra mm -hmm. amount of money to have liquid-based cytology. Mm, that's a, a very good point, thank you. Um, could you share with our listeners more about the background and the, the research um, solutions that conventional medicine has found with uh, cervical cancer? And if you could talk particularly about the viral aspect of the condition as it's now known. One of the things um, that's very interesting about cancer of the cervix is the epidemiology. And having um, been a practicing uh, doctor for 40 years, I can now look back on the history of um, cancer of the cervix and I can remember as a medical student sitting in tutorial groups and discussing with the tutor um, 
some of the strange findings that had cropped up again and again in epidemiological studies. What we couldn't get our head around at the time was why the, the job or occupation of the husband had something to do with the wife's likelihood of developing cancer of the cervix. For example, if the husband happened to be in the armed forces, he happened to be a long-distance truck driver, he happened to be in the merchant marine, he happened to be a door-to-door salesman, for some reason his wife had an increased incidence or chance of developing cancer of the cervix. Nobody could explain it. Of course, we now know that it's caused by a wart virus infection and that wart virus infection is sexually transmitted. So if he's in the merchant marine and he has a girlfriend in every port, the one egalitarian thing he did was to bring all of the wart virus home and share it with his wife. Mm, How kind. Um, we know also now that this virus is involved in many head and neck cancers. Would you like to comment on that? Oh, very much. One of the things that we have been told with the introduction of a vaccination, school-based vaccination program in Australia is that the use of uh, a wart virus uh, vaccine will result in about a 70% drop in the incidence of cancer of the cervix. What has not been talked about is the fact that probably half of the vaginal cancers, half of the vulval cancers, some 80% of anal cancers and 50 plus percent of cancers of the nose and throat and larynx are all related to wart virus. So this Gardasil uh, or Cervarax, which is the other vaccine, is going to have far, far greater effects than just the effects that it will have on cancer of the cervix incidence. Mm. So this is really important information to, uh, to know for people to educate their children. Yes. And for the anti-vaccine campaigners, uh, it's a bit of another battle uphill, I suspect. Yes, there's a lot of... Uh, Uh, incorrect information being uh, spread around about deaths from uh, the vaccine. In fact, there have been no recorded deaths from the vaccine. There have been recorded incidences of um, uh, girls having the injection and uh, having um, episodes where they collapse following the injection. I'm not particularly surprised. I can think back to my days at primary school when we were getting injections to immunise us against polio, and I can certainly remember a number of young students keeling over and dropping on the floor. Mm-hmm. So uh, in terms of diagnosing the HPV virus, um, how can people work with that? Um, and for males as well as uh, females, What do they do if they suspect that they might have it or they want to check? Um, The wart virus itself, there's no real point in diagnosing that because we've got no way of treating it. So really there's nothing more to do in women other than doing pap smears. It doesn't cause much of a problem in males uh, except for the development of genital warts, so penile warts and um, if they occur then they need to be treated by uh, by an appropriate medical practitioner 
Um, but there's no point in being screened, particularly for uh, a wart virus infection. Mm -hmm. So safe sex is the way to go? Oh, safe sex is the way to go. And since the introduction of Gardasil, uh, while we know there's going to be at least 10 years before we expect to see any change in the incidence of cancer in the cervix, if you talk to people who work in sexual health clinics and family planning, they will tell you that the incidence of genital warts has diminished by more than 80%. Mm. That's a good note to finish on as we're about to go to a break. We'll be back in a moment with Navigating the Cancer Maze with Professor Alex Crandon. Don't go away. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Holvang Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.holvang-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G-clinic.com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Guller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're back with Navigating the Cancer Maze uh, with Professor Alex Crandon, and we're going to move on with our section on gynecology today and talking about uterine cancer. Late last year on the show, I interviewed Fran Drescher, who's the star of The Nanny and Happily Divorced. And as you may remember, as a result of her delayed diagnosis and experience, Fran has become a celebrity advocate for education, awareness and early diagnosis of uterine cancer through her organisation, Cancer Schmancer. So for those of you listening in the US, I'd suggest you have a look at Fran's website. It's got some terrific information. It's cancerschmancer.org and you can also check in with my website if you forget or you need to know how to spell that. So we're going to continue with um, our guest now and I'm going to ask about cancer of the uterus specifically. Um, it's sometimes broadly divided into two groups, uterine sarcoma and endometrial cancer. First of all, could you tell our listeners about cancer of the uterus, like what is it, how does it behave and uh, what are the early warning signs or symptoms? Cancer of the uterus, <coughs> as you said, we can divide into two groups, cancer of the endometrium 
which is the most common gynaecological cancer that we see in the Western world, and <coughs> excuse me, cancer of the rest of the uterus. Um, cancers of the rest of the uterus are very uncommon, such as sarcomas. Um, they are frequently picked up <coughs> because they are um, an incidental finding uh, at the time the patient has a hysterectomy for some other apparent reason. Cancer of the endometrium, however, is different. Most of those present as postmenopausal bleeding. Mm -hmm. So there's um, no other signs, basically, that people could look for in that? Not that are going to be useful. There are, there are other things that one may be able, in retrospect, to look back and say, oh, well, that symptom was probably related to that cancer. Mm. But it's not something that if the patient turned up and presented with that symptom, you would necessarily say, oh, we would go looking for a cancer of the uterus. Yeah. If they present with and that. I guess you're getting to that problem of overdiagnosing with too many diagnostic procedures. It's it's all a balance, and as you said before, it's all about monies and governments and how much testing can one do. Absolutely. So, yeah, I guess it's up to people to just get aware and um, as educated as they can. What do we know about the behaviour of this type of cancer, its ability to metastasise, or is it more often stay local? Um, how does it kind of work? cancer of the endometrium, which is the commonest one, uh, tends to remain localised for a long part of its existence and then it will, as it invades into the wall of the uterus, it will get into the lymphatic system and tends to spread to lymphatic channels uh, and to lymph nodes. Right. Are there any um, recent advances in the diagnostic techniques? that are used or in some surgical techniques for this kind of cancer? Uh, not so much in the diagnostic techniques. It really involves, uh, first of all, having a high index of suspicion. This means if a patient presents with postmenopausal bleeding, and I'll come back to define that in a minute, um, then they need to have uh, a cancer of the uterus excluded. As a golden rule, one can think of the fact that abnormal bleeding is due to cancer till proven otherwise. So if a woman has stopped menstruating for a period of 12 months, then any further bleeding she has is postmenopausal bleeding, and the first thing that one should think of is, could this be an endometrial cancer as the cause? It is not due to hormones, it is not due to change of life, and it should never be treated by hormones or some other way until a cancer of the endometrium has been excluded, which requires at the very least a good quality ultrasound to make certain that the lining of the uterus is not abnormally thick. While there are a lot of studies that show that that is very accurate, it has to be remembered that those studies are undertaken in large university teaching hospitals with expertise in those areas you can't necessarily translate that degree of accuracy and competence to the local suburban x-ray unit which um, may well do an ultrasound and say things look okay where if that same ultrasound was repeated in a large teaching hospital they may not agree with that being normal. Mm. Are we seeing more cancer of the uterus diagnosed do you think yes. these days? Yes we definitely are. Cancer, the incidence of cancer in the population is increasing. 
And the reason that's happening is because cancer is largely a disease of age. The older we get, the higher the risk is of developing a malignancy. However, there are some cancers which are going up in the population. Their incidence is increasing faster than the population is ageing. One of those is cancer of the endometrium. Another one is postmenopausal cancer of the breast, and both of them have the same cause, and that is too much oestrogen. Where is the oestrogen coming from? It's coming from fat. So as the population gets fatter, they have a higher background production of oestrone, one of the oestrogens, and that leads to an increased incidence of cancer of the endometrium. And we are in fact now seeing patients who are so morbidly obese we can't treat them. Wow. And I saw a patient on uh, interstate um, a week ago with a BMI of 73.5, who we can't investigate because she won't fit into a CT scanner, she can't be operated on, and she can't have radiotherapy because the uh, weight tolerance limit for the... Uh, um, for the linear accelerator uh, table is 200 kilograms and she weighs in at 225. So this is a new phenomenon. Oh yes, it is. Mm. So more education and awareness about, uh, I suppose, lifestyle issues and it diet is, is important. It is. Very um, much so. Yeah, because we often look at that in the terms of uh, like overdoing the lifestyle changes and a lot of the patients that I see, we're trying to put weight on them because mm. they've gone uh, too far the other way and done a lot of diets and juicing and mm. the weight's literally dropped off them. Mm. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's really interesting. Um, in terms of treatment, which is something you also asked me about, yes, mm. there have been advances in treatment. And here in um, where I work in Queensland in Australia, uh, the vast majority of the patients we see with endometrial cancer would have their surgery done as keyhole surgery, laparoscopic. Mm -hmm. so, Which yeah. means that they're usually out of hospital within 48 hours with a much lower risk of morbidity and mortality. Mm -hmm. In terms of follow-up treatments and staging in uh, uterine cancer for people where it's gone a little too far, um, are there any things there that have become available for anyone who's listening today and who might be in that situation? Um, there are well-known well um, ways of treating uh, advanced um, endometrial cancer. They haven't changed a great deal apart from the fact that uh, we probably use chemotherapy more now than we used to. There is a big uh, international study which has shown that um, uh, under some circumstances uh, it is preferable to give, following surgery, give treatment with um, chemotherapy rather than radiotherapy mm -hmm. when you have risk of disease outside the pelvis. Right. We'll talk a little bit more about that in our next uh, topic too. I understand that some women taking tamoxifen for breast cancer also could be more susceptible uh, to uterine um, cancer. Can you comment on that? Because I've had a lot of patients very frightened um, of having tamoxifen and uh, some of the other anti-hormone drugs. Tamoxifen um, blocks up the oestrogen receptors but in the case of the endometrium, it also seems to some extent stimulate them. Um, <coughs> yes, 
there is an increased uh, risk of developing cancer of the endometrium while taking tamoxifen. The increase is very small. Um, they usually present with bleeding. It is invariably very early stage disease with an extremely high cure rate. Mm. So you've talked about cure rate a lot um, <coughs> in the, this interview. Um, across the board, as a gynaecologist, oncology surgeon, um, can you sort of share with us what the cure rates are like to these days um, with many of these gynaecological cancers? Because I think one of the things that sort of puts people into alternative medicine is that they're very afraid that there's no cure out there in conventional medicine. Okay. And you're reframing that today yeah. for us. So could you enlarge upon that? I, I probably need to define what we mean by cure. There is a medical definition for cure, and it is that you are cured when you die of something else other than your cancer with no evidence of the cancer present. Now that has a couple of inherent problems. First of all, to say that somebody has died and there is absolutely no evidence of the cancer present means that they need to have a post-mortem. The majority of people don't have a post-mortem, so you never know whether they've been cured. And in any cases, you have to die to make the diagnosis of cure. Most of the patients by then have long since lost interest in the diagnosis of whether or not they've been cured. And that's why no cancer service anywhere in the world tries to measure cure. We measure survival. And if we look at uh, the patients we treat at the Queensland Centre for Gynaecological Cancer, which is the largest gynaecological cancer service in the Southern Hemisphere, based in Brisbane, uh, if we include all diseases that we see, all gynaecological cancers and all stages, and lump them all in together, two-thirds of our patients are still alive five years after we treat them. Mm, that's uh, very good statistics. It is. And that includes patients with stage you know, three and four disease, all lumped in together. Mm. So that's not what uh, the person who looks at the internet or the average person believes. Um, how do you think we should go about educating people? You got any ideas? I think we need to have better education in schools, uh, better education to do with um, biology, how our body functions, um, self-help in terms of lifestyle, uh, things that are important in lifestyle, good eating. Um, most of the students that you speak to, if you ask them about screening for, uh, for cancers, um, most students are unable to tell you about pap smears and uh, mammograms. Um, they really know precious little about it and I think it's something they need to learn as part of their um, part of their high school education. Mm, I think that's a very good drive, so I hope if we've got some teachers and educators listening today that they might take that on board because um, in my practice I see it's really very important. I often talk about our Alt-Med Rescue um, where people have been so afraid to go into medical practice because of misconceptions and uh, some really bad ideas that have been put out there. Um, also about Big Pharma and that Big Pharma's just out to get rich and keep, uh, keep people in jobs and uh, I think that needs to be looked at too. The internet can be great, mm. um, but... <laughs> I need to remember, with all due respect to pharmacological companies, they're a business and business 101 is that its prime function is to make a profit. 
we can't really blame a company for making a profit when that's what its prime existence is there to do. Um, but no, while um, they have their problems, um, they do an awful lot of good as well. Mm, absolutely, we have a lot of disease in the world. I'm carrying a tooth abscess at the moment and I'm very delighted for antibiotics. Yes. <laughs> okay, we'll be back in a moment on Navigating the Cancer Maze, talking more um, with uh, Professor Alex Crandon about gynaecological cancer. Back soon, don't go away. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favourite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Hulvung Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.hulvang-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G-clinic.com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. So we're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze, and this time we're talking about ovarian cancer with Professor Alex Crandon. Now, ovarian cancer is often termed a silent killer. Could you tell our listeners why it's called this? What are the signs and symptoms, once again, so that uh, an early diagnosis uh, could be um, assisted there? And how does ovarian cancer behave? A lot of questions. Well, they're important questions. Uh, Why is it called the silent killer? Well, it's called the silent killer because it really doesn't have much in the way of signs and symptoms that would let you know that the disease is around in an early stage. Uh, Most of the the problems that the patient suffers from don't turn up till the patient has fairly advanced disease, usually uh, stage three. grows slowly, although the rate at which it grows varies depending on the type of cancer it is. Um, And the most common things that patients complain of is that they notice that they're putting on what they think is weight, Uh, they find their clothes are getting tight, Um, they're developing some abdominal bloating, 
they notice after they have something to eat where they could sit down and have a three-course meal, they find that they get partway into the second course and they feel full and they don't want to eat anymore. Um, they find that they develop heartburn. They may have some change in their bowel habits. Uh, and these are very nice to look back on once the diagnosis has been made and say, yes, this is what's been causing these problems over the last several months. The problem is that when you walk into the doctor and say, I've got some heartburn, the first thing he thinks of is not going to be ovarian cancer because ovarian cancer will be a very minor cause of heartburn. Mm. That's a, a good walkway there of uh, why people are so scared of ovarian cancer. I know a lot of women now are more scared of ovarian cancer than breast cancer, and there seems to be a lot more of it being diagnosed again. The incidence is going up largely because the population is ageing. Um, we know a lot about the epidemiology of it, but we still don't know what causes it. Mm -hmm. um, there's different types of ovarian cancer. Could you tell us a little bit about those types? The most common uh, ovarian cancer that we see is uh, what's called an epithelial ovarian cancer. It usually occurs in postmenopausal women and the earlier symptoms I described, such as bloating and the feeling that you can't eat very much, um, heartburn, uh, are all classical symptoms uh, related to epithelial ovarian cancer. There are other cancers that develop in the ovary, which, uh, such as uh, germ cell tumours, which usually occur in younger people, uh, certainly under the age of 35, um, and germ cell tumours may occur in uh, teenagers or even prepubescent girls. Um, when I was doing my training, um, they had a terrible prognosis. Now the vast majority of them go on to live a normal life, even though they may present with disease outside the ovary at the time of their initial diagnosis. Uh, but the epithelial tumours make up the vast majority. Other things like germ cell tumours and sex cord stromal tumours are really quite rare. Mm -hmm. So um, would I be right then in assuming that the epithelial tumours are harder to treat then than the, the germ cell tumours? You said they had a very good outcome. The germ cell tumours have got very good outcome because of their, uh, their general sensitivity to some chemotherapy agents. Um, while the epithelial ovarian cancers are also um, relatively sensitive, they're not as sensitive as germ cell tumours mm -hmm. and um, we usually get them at a much later stage. Mm -hmm. um, so I've asked this question because I've had a patient recently who's had quite a long fight with ovarian cancer and a lot of treatment, a lot of chemo, a lot of surgery and she's just recently uh, passed away. Her mother actually also had ovarian cancer, but had it at 16 years old as her first diagnosis, which is incredibly young. Um, is there a familial connection that anyone has made, and, and can that help in like monitoring someone uh, as having a high propensity um, of, of having a um, ovarian cancer diagnosed? Yes, there is. Um, we know that there are some mutations that can run through families that predispose them to certain cancers. Um, the cancers that we're particularly interested in 
uh, and about which we have been talking, uh, like ovarian cancer, also have a genetic relationship with some uterine cancers, uh, bowel cancers and breast cancer. Uh, so if you've got um, more than one person in the family affected by the same cancer, it may be worthwhile speaking to a medical geneticist who can then look at a family tree and work out whether or not there is likely to be a mutation as a cause and then somebody who has had the cancer can be tested to see if they have the mutation and if they do then other members of the family uh, then have the option of being screened to see if they're carrying that mutation. Mm-hmm. And how does one find a geneticist to, are they in hospitals? How does one find one? Um, they are in hospitals, but speak to your GP, okay. your family doctor. All right then. Um, can you discuss some of the treatments and how progress is monitored um, in ovarian cancer? Uh, the use of tumour markers, for instance. Um, tumour markers are useful, particularly CA125 but they are useful when you have made the diagnosis and the patient's CA125 level is high and when you treat them, the CA125 level drops. You can then be fairly certain that the CA125 level is going to give you a reasonable indication of what the patient's tumour is doing and you can use it as a follow-up tool. Mm-hmm. Um, it is of no use as a screening test and in fact there are no screening tests that have been shown to be effective in uh, looking for um, ovarian cancer. Mm. The silent killer, as we've said. But for people listening today, I want to kind of bring out some good news here, and I think you've already given some good news (laughs) in the the treatment paths. Um, Again, there's myths out there about uh, some cancers being worse with others than others, but... uh, I think from what you've been telling us today, there's quite a bit of hope in this area. There is, there is hope. Um, we will never find a cure for cancer because cancer is not one disease. It is mm. hundreds of diseases that are under the banner of cancer because they have something in common about their cause, their behaviour and the way we treat them. The same as we will never find an infect, uh, a cure for infection because which infection are we talking about? There are hundreds of them. Yeah, uh, But one by one, we're going to beat cancer. Um, it may not be in my lifetime, uh, but we'll get there. There were diseases, as I said, cancers I used to see when I was a trainee, that almost all patients were dead within 18 months, that now the vast majority of them go on to live a normal life. Good, love good news. I want to ask you about peritonectomy and survival in ovarian cancer, and I believe at one stage you were the only gynaecological surgeon in Australia performing the HIPEC procedure. Um, can you tell us a little bit about HIPEC and uh, as an advancement and how that has improved survival, particularly for advanced stage? HIPEC involves putting heated chemotherapy into the abdominal cavity at the end of the surgery. Um, There are no prospective randomised trials in gynaecological cancer, but there are in um, various bowel cancers and appendiceal cancer. Uh, There are five international studies that are just getting underway that we hope will show the value of HIPEC in prospective randomised trials. In Australia, I'm still the only only gynae oncologist doing HIPEC. When did uh, you begin? 
uh, about four years, four, about four or five years ago, we started doing it. Okay, this is a really interesting subject. So we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and we'll start again with talking about HIPEC and what it can offer women with ovarian cancer that is advanced. So don't go away, we'll be back with Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gore. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Holvang Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.holvang-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G dash clinic dot com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze. With your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now... Back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm Grace Gawler and welcome back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're talking about ovarian cancer with Professor Alex Crandon. Um, I want to go back to where we left off before the break in talking about HIPEC, which is hypothermic intraperitoneal chemotherapy. That's quite a mouthful. Um, I'd like to know more about the procedure and how this can help women who have advanced ovarian cancer in particular, and your history with it too. Okay. Um, HIPEC at this stage should be considered quasi-experimental in terms of gynaecological cancers. Uh, it is certainly been subject to quite a number of studies, including uh, prospective randomised trials with things such as appendiceal cancer, disseminated colon cancer and stomach cancer, um, something called pseudomyxoma peritoneae, and it is certainly shown that um, it can significantly improve survival in these patients. Uh, it involves, um, first of all, an operation called a peritonectomy, which involves stripping out all of the um, affected disease lining inside the abdominal cavity. Um, it is a long and complex uh, operation and it is something that should be centralised in, in specialist centres of excellence. Um, when the patient has been got down to the point where there is no visible disease, 
then you start with the, the HIPEC and it involves uh, using a pump, frequently a heart-lung machine, as it's often called, uh, to circulate heated chemotherapy, heated to 43 degrees, around the abdominal cavity for varying periods of time, but uh, usually around an hour to 90 minutes. Um, and then this is removed uh, prior to closing the patient up at the end of the operation. Uh, while there are no prospective randomised trials, there have been observational studies in gynaecological cancers which have shown that it is uh, effective. Um, and there are now five international studies which are getting underway that will actually prospectively look at this as a form of treatment. Um, I don't think it's something that should be looked at as a cure. I think it's something that at this stage is going to maximise the patient's longevity or potential longevity. Um, it has a significant risk to the patient. It's not a procedure to enter into lightly uh, because a peritonectomy and HIPEC dependent on the study you look at alone carries a five, around a 5% to 10% mortality. Mm -hmm. It is about as big as surgery gets. Would you say it's, um, it's perhaps one of the biggest surgical um, breakthroughs that there's been? Probably no, I would think probably the biggest surgical breakthrough has been the slow realisation that the single biggest factor that determines survival for epithelial ovarian cancer is how little disease is left behind at the end of the surgery. Mm. And in the studies that we've done uh, at the Queensland Centre for Gynaecological Cancer, you actually don't start to affect survival until you get the residual disease at the end of surgery down to less than a centimetre in size. So our approach now is to start as if we were going to remove all the tumour. We spend the first 15-20 minutes having a careful look around the abdominal cavity and if it's apparent to us that we can't get rid of all the tumour, then we remove, we take a biopsy and close up, give the patient three cycles of chemotherapy, that will shrink down the tumour in the vast majority of patients and then we can go back and remove the residual cancer and get them down to the point where there's nothing left, nothing visible left, and then after that they finish their chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. But the biggest advance has been the realisation that the amount of tumour left at the end of surgery is the biggest determinant of outcome. Okay. A great answer. Um, we're going to have to move on now because I want to just briefly talk. We've got big subjects today and we're briefly talking about them. But cancer of the vulva, um, uh, can you just talk about whether HPV is, has an involvement in that as well? And uh, it seems like more people are being diagnosed with this um, too in the current time. Um, HPV is probably involved with about half the cases of cancer of the vulva. Um, it's not common cancer. Queensland has a population of about four and a half million people. We see about 55 cases of vulval cancer a year in the state of Queensland. Um, 
the Queensland Centre for Gynaecological Cancer is responsible to the health department for the provision of all the gynae cancer services in the state. So we get virtually all of these gynaecological cancers. So we know that there's around 55 cases a year at the present time. Um, what we are starting to see, or what we are seeing, not starting to see, but what we are seeing is an increasing incidence of pre-cancers in younger women. Um, and the problem frequently is associated with cigarette smoking uh, because if a woman gets a wart virus infection and she smokes, she has almost no chance at all of her immune system clearing that viral infection while she's, while she's smoking. Mm. And the same applies for cancer of the cervix. That's very significant information. Smoking is a bigger risk for the development of cancer of the cervix than it is for the development of cancer of the lung. That is an amazing fact. Statistically. <laughs> it's one statistically I didn't know, so there we go. Um, I'd like to uh, ask you what your best advice is that you could give to anyone who's afraid of conventional medical treatments these days and who are looking at seeking the alternatives. Um, I'm still waiting with bated breath for one of the alternative practitioners to produce any information on survival. Um, all they can do is, to date, is tell me motherhood stories about how well it works. But if I say to them, what proportion of patients with X, Y, Z do you expect to be alive in five years, they can't give me any information. Now, if they haven't got that information because they don't collect the data, then how do they know that their treatment works in the first place? Mm. So as a patient, you need to be critically thinking critically asking these kinds of questions. You do, and you also need to ask it of the doctors as well. And if you continue to ask questions of the doctor looking after you for your cancer, and he continually evades the questions or doesn't answer them, maybe you need to find another oncologist. Mm. Because the same rules apply to everybody. They do. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to uh, finish up today talking about the chemotherapy study. Um, which is a study that was done in 2004, or published in 2004, and it talked about a claim that the increased survival of chemotherapy was only 2.8% after five years. Now, this study has been reproduced and quoted in so many places. Patients bring me this study and they say, why on earth would I want to have chemotherapy if that's the percentage chance I have? Now today on the show, you've given us a lot of good news and a lot of good percentages. Could you talk about that study? Mm, I can. Um, it was not a good study. And if you wanted to sit down with a group of medical students and go through and analyse the study to show them what can be bad about a study, that would be a good one to pick because it just lumps everybody into the same. If I was, as an example, if I was going to look at how good seatbelts were to protect you in um, a transport accident, I would probably limit, to, limit it to looking at cars. <laughs> yeah. If I put it in buses, I might get some useful information but I suspect that most planes, when they fall out of the sky, the majority of people have got their seatbelt on, but they don't seem to survive. Mm. But you shouldn't put the planes in the same group as you put the cars. And the problem with this study is they lumped everybody in together. They lumped 
advanced disease with early disease, they advance recurrent disease, they put in um, cancer, all cancers, some of which are known not to respond to chemotherapy. So it was a bad study. Okay, so that is cleared for now. It's uh, hopeful that some people might hear this and listen to that uh, opinion, but uh, from my understanding it's an opinion that's actually held widely across the medical community, but the alternative medicine uh, group have used this study for their own effects and a lot of people are believing it and going without treatment that could be potentially life-saving. So if that's you today out there listening, um, you can always contact me on my email, institute at Grace Gawler. Um, the uh, website's also available to you, which is institute um, So thank you today for uh, coming on Navigating the Cancer Maze and for informing many of our listeners out there the up-to-the-minute on gynecological oncology cancer. Thank, Thank you, you, Professor Crandon. Thank you. Bye for now. We'll be back next week with Navigating the Cancer Maze. Thank you again for listening to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Please join your host, Grace Goller, again next Friday at 12 noon, U.S. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Remember, cancer is not something you have to face alone. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.